All right. Um, we've been working through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 as a memory passage this year. And uh, what I'd like to do is just read it through together with it on the screen this morning, and then we'll move on. We are currently at the end of verse 6, and I hope you guys are keeping up with it. So it had been a couple weeks since I kind of ran through it in my head, and so I was, last night I was going to bed, and this morning when I was getting up, I was running through it in my head and realizing, I think I moved this part over here, and I mixed up this word with the other one. So it, it happens. It gets mixed up, but uh, hopefully you guys are still building on that. So, Caitlin, let's put that up on the screen, and we'll read it together. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is work work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right, so we're most of the way through. And if you've been around this church for a while, the ending part is the most familiar part. So keep persevering, keep going through, it will get easier at the end. Last week, Russell did a great job of instructing us from the first half of Ephesians chapter 3. Today, we're going to do the second half of Ephesians 3, which also means we end the first half of the book. And as I've said multiple times in this series, the book is designed so that the first half gives us the theological argument. It's the stuff that we need to know. It's that we are reconciled vertically to God horizontally to each other, both through the death of Christ on the cross. And then the second half is, so what? What do we do about that? How do we live our lives since we have been reconciled to God and reconciled to each other? So starting next week, we get into that second half. It gets more and more practical. Like the first couple of weeks of the second half, they're, like, they're practical, but they're still kind of high level. And then once we get into, especially chapter five, we're dealing with husbands, wives, kids, parenting, uh, work relationships. It gets really specific down into the, the nitty-gritty of life. So I'm looking forward to that. I appreciate you guys persevering through the theological argument in order to have the foundation to figure out what we're going to do in the second half. How do we live our lives? This morning, I wonder, and kids, parents, I wonder this for all of you, how strong are you? I don't mean physically strong. I don't want you to come up here and show us how many push-ups you can do, right? But how spiritually strong are you? When a storm comes at you in life, can you weather it and remain faithful to Christ? Are you strong enough to weather those storms and remain faithful? Can you stand firm, strong and unwavering in the faith? got some pictures from some trees I want to show you. Let's throw the first one up there. Can you tell which direction the wind tends to blow in this picture? Yeah. This tree has been 
standing strong against the prevailing winds for a long time. Let's go to the next picture. Winds in the other direction, same outcome. Can't even get the branches growing out one side. They, they start and then they just curve back and go the other direction. But that, steep, that tree stands strong. Let's look at this, this next one. This old cedar tree has been growing for a long time. And it went up for a while. He's like, I can do it. I can do it, guys. And he's like, I can't do it. And he just bends over down to the ground and keeps growing, but just goes with the wind. Owen thinks that's really funny. Yeah. One more in this series. This is a group of cedar trees. This is on the southernmost point of the southernmost island of New Zealand. So the, the wind comes whipping off the southern ocean, nothing to block it, hits the land, and these trees are there. Now, these trees have been planted in a line close to each other, which I assume they're a wind block. I wonder what's buried, hiding underneath them as they just keep growing downwind like that. But the, the strength that they have to have to withstand that is, is pretty amazing. All right, Katie Elliott, now's your time. Katie's going to go into the gym, and she's going to get a piece of rope. She's going to bring it around and stretch it around the whole sanctuary. And what I'm going to need from you guys is to go to the outside of the pews so you can grab the rope and kind of move around and fill in some holes. We're going to try to make one big circle with this piece of rope that she's going to bring in. So kids especially, we're going to need your help. We're going to need somebody down in this corner in order to make this work. She's getting the rope right now. Go ahead, move around, find a spot so that everybody can grab a piece of this rope as Katie Elliott brings it around. Try not to get rope burned on your ankles as she pulls it past you. <laughs> it's getting caught up on people. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Hopefully, we'll be able to connect it together. We may need people to step in in order, yeah, we're going to need some people, especially in the corners, maybe to step in, pull it up over the pews. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. All right, we got kind of a square going. Let's try to make it a little more into a circle. Let's, let's go ahead and pull it tight. So, Jen, if you stay, stay in that spot in the rope but walk backwards, then we'll have it there. Okay. All right, so we're kind of failing with the whole geometry class this morning, but, but what we have is, is something that in an uh, alternate universe would resemble a circle, all right? <laughs> all right, so what, what you have here, if this was a circle, you would have a 100-foot circumference circle and roughly a 36-foot diameter circle. This is the size of the world's largest tree at its base. Yeah. yeah. So, Kaylin, let's, let's get a picture up there. I want you guys to just hold this circle as I tell you about this. So, have anybody ever been to General Sherman? All right. So, General Sherman, a giant sequoia tree out in California. Not a redwood tree, cousin to a red, redwood tree. Giant, giant tree. And that picture doesn't really help us grasp how big this thing is. But just imagine us around the base of the tree that is this big around. 
if you went 180 feet up, it would still be 14 feet in diameter. The biggest branch is 7 feet in diameter. You don't have a tree for hundreds of miles from here that the trunk is 7 feet in diameter. Maybe thousands of miles from here, right? Just crazy. Now, it's not the tallest tree in the world. It's only 275 feet tall. It's not the oldest tree in the world. It's only 2,200 years old, older than Christianity. But it is the largest tree by volume, 52,500 cubic feet of tree. So if we turn that into water, that's enough to fill a bathtub with water every day for 27 years. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of volume. This is a humongous tree. All right, let's, uh, Katie, let's have you just gather up the rope and take it back into the gym. You guys can go back to your seats. We've got a couple more comments about our giant tree, and then we'll dismiss the kids. Thank you guys for humoring me as we did our little science demonstration there. Got to drag Hank across the front. So, thank you. All right, thank you guys. So, for a tree to grow that big and that long, I mean, duration, in a mountainous environment like it grows in, you have to believe that that tree is really, really strong. And you would probably assume that it has super deep roots to hold it up. But you would be very wrong if that was your assumption. Even a tree this big of the giant sequoia genus has an average root depth of 14 to 16 feet. You think, how in the world does that work? How does it stand up? You get big storms. You know, we had a big storm just a few days ago. Yesterday, was it? All kinds of trees, branches, all kinds of stuff, yeah. How does something that's 275 feet tall with only 14 or 16 feet deep roots, how does it stand against a storm? Well, what it, makes, what it lacks in depth of roots, it makes up for in breadth of roots. So that rope that we had was 100 feet long, and a tree this size sends its roots out 100 feet in, either, in all directions, just a, a big pancake of roots going out. But that is not enough to explain the strength of these trees. All right, so let's go on for a few pictures here, Caleb. Let's go on. Thank you for helping with the rope. Okay. The giant was you look at this and you can't picture how big these are. Let's go on to the next one. Yeah, just amazing. Let's go to the next one. That really helps me picture the size of these trees, right? All right, last one in this series, Caleb. This is the secret to how strong they are. Giant sequoia trees always grow in groves. They grow very close to each other. Right? You think about the trees that may be growing on the properties around here, and the really big ones tend to be far apart from each other. These are giant trees very close to each other. That serves as a windbreak, helps the guys in the middle, but primarily it's about the roots. All those going out in 100 feet in any direction, those roots intertwine with each other on purpose so that they hold each other up. They strengthen each other. 
And that's why we're talking about it this morning. That's going to play in directly to the passage that we're going to look at. Kids, thank you for helping with this. You guys can head downstairs. Phyllis, thank you for leading them. I hope you guys have a great time. I'm going to pray while they head downstairs. Father, thank you for being such a creative and powerful God. Thank you for all that you have made. I look forward to the things that we're going to marvel at in just a few minutes. Thank you for this created world that you have made. And we get to live in it and enjoy it. We thank you for giant things that give us a little bit of perspective. Thank you for the way that you've designed those sequoia trees so that they, their roots intertwine with each other and spread out horizontally. They, they hold each other up. They strengthen each other. Lord, help us to be a church like that as we study your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, starting with verse 14, going through the end of the chapter. If you're looking in a pew Bible, it's on page 977. Paul starts out, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, we can't just start right there without asking, what does he mean for this reason? Well, it's the stuff before then. It's the stuff that Russell did such a good job of explaining to us last week. Specifically, it's the idea of the gospel concealed and then revealed. That throughout all of the Old Testament period, the gospel was partially concealed. There were hints of it, there were prophecies of it, but nobody really knew what it was or the extent to what it was. And then it's revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the ministry of the early church. And the primary thing that was concealed and then revealed is the fact that the gospel extends to all kinds of people. That whereas the Old Testament was focused in on the Jewish people, the gospel and the New Testament spreads the family of God out so that all kinds of people are welcome. That was hidden for thousands of years and then revealed to us in the New Testament and laid out very specifically in the first half of chapter 3. So that's what Paul's talking about when he says, for this reason. And what does he do because of that reason? He says he bows his knees before the Father. So he bows in worship, and we'll see that he bows in prayer, he bows in humility, he bows in submission to God. Now this is a rare, rare thing, even in the church, because we have, over the last few decades, we've, we've built up this idea about God where we think of him as our buddy who gets us out of a jam every once in a while, or the genie in the bottle that we can, we can rub the bottle and we can ask and we can get what we want, but we think of God as at our service and our beck and call. It's deep inside of us because our culture programs us that way. And, and Paul here, who's far more qualified than us, says he bows his knee. He bows in reverence. He bows in humility before our awesome God. God is the absolute and sovereign ruler of all creation, and he is to be feared. But notice, Paul doesn't just refer to God as giant and amazing and to be feared and, and all of that stuff. He talks about God as the Father. And this is a fundamental difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. God reveals himself, chooses to label himself as Father. And not just grumpy old angry Father, not just abusive Father, but loving, gentle, kind Father. That is how he describes himself to us. And Paul 
echoes that here. He says, bows before the Father. And he says, it's the Father for whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Now, that's kind of a weird way for us to talk today, but here's the point of what he's getting at. Two main things. First, God is the Father of all humanity because all families trace their lineage back to the first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve, who were created by God. So God's directly their father in a sense, and then we all descend from them. So there's this conversion in spiritual sense of God becoming our father, us being adopted in the family of God. And then there's this true of everybody, somehow we trace our origins back to Adam and Eve, and all in that sense, under God as father. Humans are not a result of millions of years of accidents and evolution and genetic roulette. Humans are created on purpose, for a purpose, and it's specifically explained to us in the book of Genesis. The second part that we get out of this is this idea that we are all one race. Now, you've heard me say this before, but man, race continues to be such a hot topic today. It's important that you understand this. If the Bible's account of creation is true, which I completely believe it is, means we all trace our heritage back to that first man and that first woman, means there is one human race. Now, there's great variety, colors, sizes, shapes, ethnicities, languages, where you live in the world. All, there's great variety, but there's one human race. And Paul says that, that human race, all those families trace their existence, their naming back to God. And he is able to save any of them. He is fully capable to save any kind of person that he chooses. I don't want you to miss that important worldview aspect. Christianity stands against the tide. There's a new kind of racism that's raging in our cities and universities right now. It's called anti-racism, but it's actually just another form of racism. They say, the old racism said if you were this background, then you are evil and cursed and all that. Now, if you're the opposite background, you're evil and cursed. And Christianity says that that is not only ridiculous, that is sinful, and that is not reality because we all go back to Adam and Eve. And we're all created in the image of God, and that means we have a measurable value just for existing. It goes for unborn children too. So Teague and Danielle Martin, not this Thursday, but the Thursday before, they had their second son, Briggs Elijah Martin. I showed you their picture last week. I'll put it up again. He's a cute little guy. I look forward to meeting him. This precious baby has just as much intrinsic value as any of us in this room. Was that true the Wednesday before he was born? Yes, absolutely. It didn't matter that he was still inside of his mom. He still had just as much value. Was that true nine months earlier when he is conceived and just a few cells starting to multiply? Yes, just as much intrinsic value as any of us in this room. Don't let anybody convince you otherwise. Paul 
after he establishes this, this common humanity, submission to God the Father, he goes on, he says this in verse 16. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, Paul's writing to Christians. He knows that they have the spirit of God dwelling in them. But what does he pray for? He prays that the spirit would strengthen them because they're weak, just like we're weak. We look at those trees standing against the storm, and that's really not a good picture of us most of the time. We tend to cave to the storms. We tend to get blown over and have our branches broken off. Even though we're called to stand strong, a lot of the times we're weak. But, here's the message that Paul's getting to us here, God can strengthen us. If you are weak, if you are spiritually struggling, even if you're just outright failing, given up in the fight, God can strengthen you according to this verse. When the attacks of Satan come, when the systems of the world come crashing down on you, when sin rises up inside of you, God can strengthen you in your inner being, according to this verse. Do you know anyone who's physically weak but spiritually strong? I think of John Snyder, right? Fighting cancer, fighting the treatments for cancer. His body is not what it was a few years ago, right? But he keeps fighting. How does he have the strength to keep going? Is he just stubborn? That's part of it. Some of you are nodding your head, right? I wonder if the live stream is working right now. Hi, John. But it's a strengthening in his inner being. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, has been strengthening John, helping him to continue that fight. I think about Owen. Do you know anybody more physically incapable than Owen? Maybe some of you do. Yet he keeps going. He's closing in on a month's worth of days in the hospital just since January 1st. Yet he keeps going. I have to believe that God is strengthening him. Or how about my wonderful wife who spends all those days in the hospital with him? How does she keep going? She is strengthened in her inner spirit, inner being, by the Holy Spirit. It is a spiritual strength that she runs off of, which is amazing. Now, if you look back at our verse that we just read, 16, that strengthening that you can experience. So if you're weak today, if you're worn out, that strengthening that you can experience is not determined by how strong or stubborn or determined you are. According to the verse, it's determined by, according to the riches of his glory. You can be strengthened by God according to the riches of his glory, or to the degree, or in line with the riches of his glory. And we think, what in the world does that mean? Well, my battery's depleted, I'm worn out, I need strengthened, I need charged up, but what would it mean to be strengthened by God to the degree in which he is glorious? Nothing we can understand or describe or see compares to the glory of God. And so how are we to understand this verse? Have you seen the first photos from NASA's new space telescope? Just coming in in the last week or so. Here's the first image I want to show you guys. Everything that you can see in that image is invisible to you from Earth. 
even if you had a, a really big telescope, but certainly with your naked eye, even in the darkest place on earth, you couldn't see anything that you can see in that image. In fact, everything you see in that image is so far away and, from our perspective, so close together that if you placed a single grain of sand on the tip of your finger and held it out at arm's length, everything in that image would be concealed, hidden by that single grain of sand. And yet we get this great infrared camera, we get it outside of our atmosphere, and we focus it on a particular place for a long time, and we get an image like this, and if we zoom in, we realize that everything that we're looking at there, those are not just stars, those are galaxies. Some of them we can see as galaxies, some of them are just dots, because they're still so far away, but each of those dots or blurry images are giant collections of millions of stars all hidden by that grain of sand. Let's go to the next picture. Just think about what it took to create these things. And God created them out of nothing simply by speaking them into being. And that, that white, perfect spiral galaxy right there, he made sure that it was oriented so that we could look right at it and not just at the side. Right? We can see that perfect spiral. These things are glorious, and they are beyond our ability really to understand. Let's go to this last picture in the sequence. So this is an a, a area called the Stevens Quintet. Now, I cropped it some. There's a, there's a fifth white galaxy down off the bottom of the screen there, but in order to zoom in, I crop, cropped it off of there. These four, and then the fifth one, are relatively close to each other so that they're even interacting with each other. You can see it in the swirl. You can see how the, the spinning is interacting and pulling stars off of one onto the other. That is happening so far away that no humans have ever seen it until this week. And yet God created it all and spoke it all into being this is the measure, not even that, this is just part of the measure of the glory of God, the degree to which you can be strengthened in the Spirit. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All right, so there's a lot in there, right? Don't corrupt that first part into something simplistic and childish like just ask Jesus into your heart. That's not what it's talking about. That's something that our, our American church has made up in the past decades, and it We've done a great disservice to our children. We say, just ask Jesus into your heart rather than explaining the gospel, presenting them with the option of repentance and faith in order for a new life. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about being filled with God. We see that at the end of that paragraph, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Once you become a believer, the Spirit of God comes to dwell inside of you. You tend to leak. You need to be filled up again and again with the Spirit. That doesn't mean some kind of crazy experience that fills you with emotion. 
in the New Testament, we see over and over again, to be filled with the Spirit is to be submitted to the Spirit, to be obeying the Spirit. As you yield to the Holy Spirit, you are filled more with the Spirit of God. So are you running on empty? Maybe it is because you really are getting more empty. And you need to feed yourself on the Word of God. You need to cultivate a life of communion with Him in prayer. You need to ask Him to fill you and strengthen you. And this is not your own strength. It comes through faith, as the verse says. So you can be filled with the Spirit of God. You can be full of Him. You can be empowered by Him, strengthened by Him. How does this happen? According to these verses, it's all about love. You think, well, I didn't see that coming, right? But there it is. Let's go back and look. It says, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Notice, Paul doesn't even command us, get rooted, be grounded in love. Root yourself. No, he's saying this is already reality. We've seen this throughout the book of Ephesians. Paul describes what is already true, what has already been done for us. It's foundational to the gospel. God does the work for us. As you already are. It is God's love that made us alive in Christ. Remember how that fits from our memory verse. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. He did it. So if Jesus has saved you, you are alive in him, and you are, at least to some degree, rooted and grounded in love. That vertical love, that vertical reconciliation, is then converted into a horizontal love and reconciliation. You think back to our giant trees growing really tall, but with wide, horizontal, intertwined roots. Owen thinks that's a great idea. Notice that it says that we're made, that we, he made us alive together with Christ. That's in the, the memory verse. Made us alive together with Christ, meaning that we're not saved alone. Now, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we're not saved alone. We're saved with each other as a family, adopted into the family of God. We're meant to live together as a family. And so, really, if we went back and we looked at all of those, those words there, verse 17 actually has a bunch of plural yous. So, we could really read it this way. It would communicate it better. Verse 17, So that Christ may dwell in y'all's hearts through faith, that y'all, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, and we might say with all y'all saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that y'all may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is really what was written by Paul for us. They're all plural. He's not saying you, particularly, you individually are these things but that you all together are rooted and grounded in love. This is really important, y'all. We need to get this. 
We are a community together. We need each other. We grow with each other. We are strengthened with each other. Our roots intertwine with each other. We're not meant to live the Christian life alone. God roots us and grounds us in love with each other. If we go on, he says, back in Ephesians 3 here, we are to comprehend with all the saints, so with each other, we're to understand this, what? The breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the love of Christ. Now we can understand how Paul might be trying to give us the, a three-dimensional view of a box, you know, height, width, tenth, length, it all equals volume, but he's got four things in here. Right? It's not just a simple three-dimensional box. He's got height and width and length, and he's also got breadth. And you have to wonder, is he somehow trying to communicate like time as a fourth dimension in there? I don't know. And that's on purpose. Because the point of these, these words right here is that, that we're somehow to know these things, and yet they're unknowable. We can't comprehend them, and yet we're called to comprehend them. This is verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know this thing that you can't know. It's beyond your ability to know. It isn't just a cop-out. The love of, really God, of God really is beyond our ability to fully understand, but we can partially understand it through the love that we have for each other. We are ground, rooted and grounded together in love. Where does this strength come from? It comes from being rooted and grounded in love together. Rooted with each other. Grounded with each other in love. God strengthens us together with the other saints so that we can know the love that is beyond our ability to fully understand. Now, this may necessitate a radical redefinition of love for you. Most of us in this world, at least in the Western world, we have, we have a faulty definition of love, and it's not our fault. We've been taught this our whole lives. We think of love as an emotion. We think of love as something that benefits ourselves. But if we're meant to live our lives intertwined with each other like the roots of the giant tree, or like Paul talks about here, rooted and grounded in love, we may need to redefine what it means to love each other. I've been listening to a, an old teaching series that's more, more than 10 years old. Teaching series by Pastor Vodi Bauckham. He's been teaching about marriage, and in it he... He defines love in this particular way. I wanted to share it with you. So, Caleb, we've got a slide here. Definition of love. He says, Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Let me break that down for you. Most of us, we think of love as being driven by emotion. We feel love. We fall in love. It's like love chooses us. We don't choose it. But he backs up. He says biblical love is an act of the will. It's a choice. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's not feeling all this emotional, fuzzy love for us. He's choosing to love us. And so love, according to the Bible, is an act of the will. Now, it's accompanied by emotion. It's not driven by emotion. It's not all emotion, but it's not emotionless either. Right? 
act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. So love is active. It's not, it's not just a feeling. It's not just something that you think that you keep inside, but it's active. So if you love someone, you will act on that. In fact, it is the acting on that that really turns it into love. Love is not passive. It is active. And that action is on behalf of, or you could say, for the good of, or for the blessing of the other person. And so much of what we've absorbed from our culture says, love is about what you get, how it makes you feel, how it makes you happy, how it makes you fulfilled, how it gives you pleasure, all that. But biblical love is pointed outwards. How are you loving, serving, acting for the benefit, the good of others? Love isn't about you and what you can get. It's how you can serve and benefit others. That's true in marriage. It's true in the church, too. Church people need you as a church person to choose to love them. Now, I know that that is a risk. As I think back over my adult years, the relationship that have wounded me the deepest are church relationships. Some are just regular folks in the church. Some are people in leadership. Some are other pastors in the church that have hurt me the most. I've, I've been disappointed. I've been betrayed. I've been accused of things. I've been screamed at. I've been lied to. I've been just ignored and, and written off. And I'm tired of that. But God calls me and calls us to continue to risk in love with each other. If you choose to intertwine your roots with other people in the church, you're going to get hurt. I promise it. It's going to happen. But you're still called to it. And you need it. And the rest of us need it. If we're going to stand strong in the storms... We need God's love rooted and grounded in us together. I know that's a risk. Think about Jesus in the garden, weeping, sweating, drops of blood. His friends who he wanted to count on are asleep, and he's alone. Think of Judas minutes later, shows up with soldiers to arrest Jesus, and he comes and betrays him with a kiss, the kiss of a friend, of a close friend. Three years invested in Judas, turned into betrayal. I think about Jesus abandoned by his buddies as he's beaten during his trial, or Jesus hanging on the cross naked and almost entirely alone in the world because almost all of his best buddies who swore they would never leave him, have left him. Does Jesus know what it's like to be hurt by friends? He does. Does Jesus know what it's like to build relationships and invest in people and pour your life into people and then have them walk away from you, turn their back on you, or stab you? Jesus knows all of that. For him, it wasn't a question of if the betrayal in the heart was going to come. It wasn't a question of when. He knew all that from the beginning. 
There was no surprise there. And yet he chose to do it anyway. I think about three years of building into those guys. Not just Judas, but Peter and the others who all ran away. How many nights around the campfire, laughing with each other, telling stories with each other, uh, Jesus patiently explaining again to them what he taught earlier, and they're just not getting it. These guys knew each other better, I'm going to say, than any of us in this room know each other, except maybe within our families. These guys were brothers. Jesus invested that love in them, and it hurt them. It hurt them deeply. I know it's scary. I know it's a huge risk, but that is what we are called to. So let's finish this up. Number 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So if you think this call of being rooted and grounded together, of loving each other, of excuse me, self-sacrificial love, of risky love, like it guarantees you're going to get hurt. If that's what you're called to, how in the world could you possibly pull it off? That's answered here. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all you can ask or think. It's not about you. It's not about your ability. Yeah, you've got to choose to do it. You've got to invest in those relationships. You've got to choose to open yourself up, make yourself vulnerable, vulnerable to hurt. But it's Christ who is able more abundantly than we can ask or think. So you can't imagine how able he is. Your mind is unable to imagine, to think, to scratch the surface of how able he is. That's what it's saying here. Do you think he can handle this? Do you think he can be trusted with your risk of relationships? What's the hope for outcome of this risk? According to these two verses here, it is the glory of God. Look at that last verse. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's how the theological argument first half of Ephesians ends. All of this, including the risky love for each other, is for the glory of God. So let me just kind of summarize for us these few verses and frame it within the idea of doing it together. So if we go back to the beginning of our passage today, we bow our knees before God together. We do it together. We are strengthened by the Spirit in our inner being together. Christ dwells in us together. We are rooted and grounded in love together. We can know the unknowable love of God together. All of this happens when we are intertwined with each other, loving God, loving each other together. God does more than we can ask or think to ask. 
does this for us together. And then finally, God is glorified by all of this through us together. That's the end of the first half. Starting next week, we get into how in the world do we go about loving each other? How do we go about living as a church, as families, as couples, as individuals in light of all of this? I'm really looking forward to it. I hope you are too. Let's pray. Father, we're going to sing in just a moment about how you are our hope. Jesus, you you gave up your life, you died for us, but you are alive now and you are now our living, not dead, living hope. I pray that you would take our voices, you'd unite them together as one so that together we could glorify you by singing about the truths of what you have done for us. Lord, I want to pray for the Folks in our church who have been hurt, uh, I know there, there are people who are not here because they would rather not be hurt, and so they choose not to love and engage with each other. Lord, there are some who have been burned multiple times, and they just don't want anything to do with it. They're tired, they're tired of being hurt, they're tired of being disappointed, they're tired of being and betray. They're tired of, of all the things that can go wrong in personal relationships, even within a group of redeemed people. Lord, I've had seasons in my life where I'm just so tired of that too. I thank you that each time that happens, you call me, you call us to choose to love each other, to choose to risk knowing that we will get hurt again someday. You have led an example with that, Lord Jesus. You gave your life, loving us as we wanted you dead. Lord, please strengthen us, root us, ground us in your love with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.